finally people in the sanctuary on a Sunday. How great is this? What in the world? And also people in the FLC, it was so great. There's like a whole line of Bonsangu sitting out there and then behind that there was the Bray family and the Beebe family and Miriam and Cookie back there. It is good to be back together as a church. Can you tell for the last 14 weeks, I've been preaching to an empty room. So I'm thankful that you're all here. Uh, and just, you know, as, as God has given us grace to be able to meet again, we want to honor our leaders. And so we're kind of, as Jesus said, trying to keep to uh, the capacity limit and do things. So for a few weeks, we're just going to have to flex with that. It's going to be all right. Uh, I do want to say one thing real quickly, uh, because I know um, part of the guidelines is we can't open up our children's ministry. So we have little kids in our sanctuary. And I just want to say quickly to you parents who have little kids here, don't worry about it. Don't, worry. Don't, don't feel like, oh, they're going to make noise. And look, uh, in 30 years of preaching the gospel, I've had things thrown at me. I've had people stand up and cuss me out. There is nothing your kids are going to do that can top any of that. So it's okay that they're here with us. As a matter of fact, we want that. Even when our children's ministry opens up and all that thing goes going, feel free to bring your kids into the sanctuary. I think it's positively good that kids see their parents, the people in their church worshiping God, wrapped in attention to the Word. So don't feel that there's any pressure that you have to leave just because your kids are just being kids, right? So they are welcome here. All right, well, let's jump into it. If you, don't have, if you have a Bible, make sure you're at Hebrews chapter 2. Um, you know, I kind of thought, um, and you, you guys are thinking this right now, that I thought I had uh, attention deficit disorder, right? I thought I had a, a short uh, uh, attention span, but I realized I was wrong. Friday night, I was catching a flight back from Denver, and I was sitting next to a guy, and he had his iPad out, and he was flipping through movies, news feeds, websites, uh, anything he could find to entertain himself for the two-hour flight. And since I, I didn't have my iPad, I was watching what he was watching, right? And uh, you always love sitting next to that person, and he kind of knew it because he slowly would, would shift a little bit. But, and, and I got so frustrated because this guy wouldn't watch one thing for more than 10 minutes. So in this two-hour flight, we'd watched uh, uh, chunks of 1917. We watched Avatar, Maleficent 2, Lord of the Flies, and Dude, Where's My Car? And I was like... I was so frustrated by his selection, which was so odd that I kind of already tuned out, but I realized that there was a theme running through all the movies that he had chosen to watch, and I'm not sure if he was deliberate about this, but the theme that came out was that humanity is really pretty messed up, right? In every one of those movies, in the Disney movies, either if it's a cartoon or a live-action film, it's always the, the, the fairies or the animals or the elves that, that, are, are, that are enlightened, and the people are messing everything up. In Avatar, it was the blue, tall aliens that are good, and the humans are bad. On a more serious note, the Lord of the Flies, right? The, 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 the movie, or the book, but the movie makes the point, illustrated by the most innocent of us, which are pre-adolescent British schoolboys, if they can become murderous, feral savages, then nobody actually is good at heart. And then, of course, the last film, 1917, World War I, right? A war started by humanity, global conflict started by humanity. It seems like all of these films are bringing the theme that humanity is just a, a mistake, it's a wreck, we just never can get better. And if you're kind of keeping your finger on pop culture, even the surrounding culture has this view that there's something fundamentally wrong about humanity and we just need a, a reboot. 
Even the spiritualities that are out there say that the next evolution of humanity will be very different than what we are now. Or if you're not spiritually inclined, the transhumanist movement believes that, that humanity can expand beyond what it itself and what it is and be so much more than what we currently are. Even pseudo-religions teach as God, because God became man, now man can become God. But in contrast to all these things, in contrast to all these things, the Bible does teach that God became man, but not so that man can become a God, but God became man so that man can become, actually can become man finally and fully. Now, I know that's not as um, exciting or sounds as spiritual as some of these other ideas, but I like the fact that the Bible, Christianity, appreciates our humanness. And I'm grateful for that. I, I, I like the tactileness, the grittiness, the earthiness of being this type of creation that God has made. Christianity never teaches that human beings are a mistake or that um, we're beyond hope or that we're simply on some, a, a stop on some evolutionary process to something else. In fact, the biblical worldview maintains that humanity is the crowning creation of all God's created works. Even though we are not what we were intended to be, and that's very clear, we of all things have the unique privilege to be made in the image of God. Man and God, or God, man was created to be with God, and the fullest expression of that is found in the God-man, Jesus Christ. You see, the incarnation is not just a, a metaphysical mind-blower. The incarnation also serves as an important reminder to us that humanity, our humanness, matters. What we are matters to God. And the incarnation of Jesus reminds us of three important things this morning. That's number one, that God came to be with us in our humanity. And what that means is because God came to be with us in our humanity, God came to be with us in our difficulty. And the reason that God came to be with us in our humanity and in our difficulty is so that He could restore us to our glory. And all three of these were taught in that passage of Hebrews that Randy just read to us this morning. Now, I realize that we have a slightly, in some sense, younger audience members here, so let me do something to help you keep you dialed in, okay? You younger people, younger than 18, here you go. Every scripture verse I put on this screen behind me, if you can write down every scripture verse I write down, and email it to me, which my email address is rick at cccLH.org. If you can write down every verse I put down there, you don't have to write the whole verse out, just the, the scripture write citation, right? You email that to me, and I'm going to send you, the one I pick, a nice treat for you and your family. All right? So I got you locked in, right? So for example, here's some verses. Just write those down, okay? And keep your eyes open for that. So number one, God came to be with us in our humanity. Now, the incarnation of Jesus, basically, that's a, that's a theological term that simply means God embodied in the flesh. The incarnation of Jesus, that God became man, is at the heart of the gospel message. You know, the Christian message, the, the idea of the incarnation is wholly unique to Christianity. 
God's pursuit of us, God coming to us, God identifying with us is found in no other of the religious systems. Islam vows against any concept of an incarnation. The Baha'i faith, Buddhism, Hinduism, they disavow any such thinking like this, that God would become man. It is wholly unique in the world of, uh, in the religious worlds that we know of. Man-based religion is about man reaching out to God, man extending out to God, man trying to bridge the divide between human and the divine. Christianity teaches the opposite, that in Christianity, in the gospel, God extends to man, God reaches down to man, God bridges the gap between the divine and the human. The incarnation, friends, in some sense, in some real sense, it's not just part of the process, it's actually the core of the gospel message, that God would take the initiative, that God would take upon Himself our responsibilities and our duties. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to spend a lot of time in in verse 5 through 17 this morning. And Hebrews 2, this section of Hebrews 2, for you note-takers, this is the writer of Hebrews interpreting Psalm 8, okay? So, a lot of what we're talking about is taken right out of Psalm chapter 8, and the writer is interpreting Psalm 8 in light of the work of Christ, which, by the way, is a great way you always should interpret Scripture in light of Christ. Listen what he says in verse 7, quoting Psalm 8. You made Him, speaking of humanity, for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned Him, humanity, with glory and honor. Okay? Now I want you to look at verse 9 and look at how the writer kind of shifts focus. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. So what's he doing here? The writer of Hebrews is looking at Psalm 8 and he knows that Psalm 8 is talking about God's creation of humanity and that God made humanity a little lower than the angels and crowned upon him glory and honor. But then in verse 9, he transitions and says the exact same thing, but this time he refers to him as Jesus. Let's look at verse 11 so we can connect the dots. Look at verse 11, the second half of verse 11, the writer says this, that is why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers. Our humanness is something that the Christian worldview celebrates. We're not a plague on the planet. We're not a problem that needs to be solved. We are a creation that God loves, one certainly that needs to be redeemed, but we're a creation that God loves, and into this, God sent His Son. Look at verses 14 and verse 17. Verse 14 says this, Since therefore the children, now what's the children he's talking about? He's still talking about the children of Adam, humanity, right? Since therefore the children share share in flesh and blood, he himself, speaking of Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. Look at verse 17. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Those two verses are very important. The writer is making clear that whatever it is to be human, God took that on. 
Whatever it is to be human, God took that on, and the comprehensive nature of that incarnation is seen in those two phrases in verse 14 and verse 17. In the same way, the same things in every respect. God knows our experience in the same things in every respect. If you have ever struggled with weakness, God understands that. If you've ever struggled with feeling misunderstood or betrayed, God understands that. If you have ever struggled feeling unknown and without hope, God understands that. If you've known hope, if you've known joy, God understands that. If you know hurt or disappointment, God understands that too. Jesus knows because He is like us in the same way in every respect. He understands our experience. Now, some people say, well, how, does, how can Jesus represent me? He, do, he doesn't know my life. He, doesn't, he hasn't lived what I've lived. He hasn't experienced what I've experienced. And you know what? To a certain degree, that's true, isn't it? He hasn't. But if the, the way of understanding and, and connecting with somebody means that we know exact experiences, that there's an identical match, then that means none of us know what any of us experience because all of us experience life totally uniquely, right? In other words, tall people experience life very differently than short people like me. I'm just going to be honest. Good-looking people experience life much differently than the way I experience life. I'm just going to be honest, right? Smart people experience life a lot differently than I experience. Well, I guess I'm pretty smart, but you get my point. (laughs) Healthy people experience life very differently than unhealthy people experience life. So if our expectation is you've got to understand my experience 100%, then we're all going to live in a very lonely world because none of us will understand any of us if that means everything. So what is the writer of Hebrews talking about when it says in the same things, in every respect, he took on our humanity? And it's not just talking about the physical appearance, it's talking about the human experience. What's it talking about if he doesn't know exactly my experience? Well, here's the reality, friends. And if we stop and think about it, we know this is true. Our experience of life the joys and the sorrows, the good and the bad. It's only a matter of the degree and situation. But we all share the same kinds of experiences. Does that make sense? So, for example, first hour, I talked about my wife. We've celebrated 20 years of marriage this year. I don't know the heart-wrenching grief of an unfaithful spouse because I've enjoyed a faithful marriage and we've loved each other and it's been wonderful. But I do know what it's like to have somebody who loves me betray me, somebody who loves me break my heart and turn their back on me. I may not know what it's like to have that happen with my spouse, but I know the heartbreak of that betrayal. So it's a different situation, a different degree, but it's the same kind of experience. Does that make sense? So I I may not know absolute injustice of some of our other brothers and sisters, but I do know what it's like to be misunderstood and treated unfairly based on something superficial like an appearance or misunderstanding. So it's not the same situation, and it's certainly not the same degree, but it's the same kind of sense of you don't get me and you judge me still. 
And so Jesus understands all of the human experience because we all experience the same kinds of things. I hope you can see that, that Jesus experiences joy. He knows your hopes. He knows what it's like to be disappointed. He knows what it's like to be misunderstood. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. And you know the great thing about that is, Hebrews 2 tells us, the great thing about that is that we can take all of our struggles and all of our experiences and we can take it to Jesus and He gets us. And He gets us. Have you ever had the experience, you know, you're having coffee, you're sharing your heart with somebody, you're pouring out your struggles and they say something like, well, that's not that big a deal right? Or, or, or they say something like, oh, you think that's bad? Listen to what happened to me, right? Or worse yet, they just kind of go, eh, whatever. Or, well, you made your bed. You just lay in it. Jesus doesn't do that. Look at chapter 2, verse 17. So that He might become. So it's in the context that Jesus understands the human experience, and 17 says, so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Friends, sometimes when we can overcome our difficulties, that doesn't always lead to us being merciful people, does it? Sometimes if we overcome adversity and struggle and we just get ourselves through, sometimes that makes us proud. And so when people share their hardships with us, what do we tend to do? I, I did, I overcame that, you should too. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps, be like me. Jesus never does that. Right? Sometimes we can take on an air of self-righteousness. Jesus, the only one who legitimately is self-righteous in the best possible sense, He never takes that posture towards us. But He's a merciful high priest because He knows our experience, because He knows what it is to be human. He came to be with us in our humanity, but there's more than that. Because He came to be with us in our humanity, He came to be with us in our difficulty. If we look at Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 8, all the way through verse 10, you'll hear words like suffering, fear, anxiety. Verse 15, uh, deliver all those who the, through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. There's all these words of, of struggle and difficulty. I want to focus in on Verses 8 and 9 for a moment here. Verse 8, this is still pulling from Psalm 8. Putting everything in subjection under His feet. What's He saying there? Remember Psalm 8? God created the world and He created humanity and He bestowed humanity with this elevated place that all of creation should be under humanity so that humanity could rule it on behalf of God wisely and lovingly and benevolently. And so that was our position before that's what verse 8 is saying. Now, in putting everything in subjection to Him, He left nothing outside His control. So, humanity was to control on behalf of God everything in this wonderful creation. At present, second half of verse 8, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. What's He getting at there? What the author is talking about, he says, look, this is the way we were created. But that didn't, things didn't work out that way. Right now, if we look at the world, everything's not in subjection to humanity. As a matter of fact, everything's gone in chaos. What he's referring to is our failure in Adam. Let me take you to Romans chapter 5, verse 12. This is what Paul the Apostle says. And both of these passages, he's referring to Genesis chapter 3. 
Therefore, just as sin came into the world through the one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all men sinned, carrying on the same theme of the consequence of our sin and the the beauty of redemption in chapter 8. This is what Paul writes. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it. What Paul is talking about here, what the the writer of Hebrews 2 is referring to, is that we don't see everything in subjection to man because man blew it. In our rebellion against God, not only did we sever the relationship with God, not only did we sever the relationship with each other, we've severed the relationship to the created order itself. And now the entire creation is suffering under our mistake as well. Our failure just doesn't have consequences for us, the Bible tells us. Our failure has consequences for the entire created order. First hour I shared, I don't know if this is going to go over well. It didn't go over so well first hour, but let me say it here. I was told it's a dad joke. That's why it didn't go over well. So, okay, here's a dad joke. Do you know why all the animals growl at us? Because they know we're at war with their creator. See, it's not really a joke, is it? They told me it's a dad joke, but it's not. It's it's just a profound insight. The reason animals growl at us is because they know we're the ones that put them into this mess. (laughs) I heard loud. I should just drop. If they don't work first hour, don't try it second hour. But that is true, right? Our sin has brought a severing of relationship, not just between us and God, We have certainly seen that severing of relationship between man and man in the last several weeks very clearly, but our failure has also brought severing of relationship between us and the created order. We have failed since the beginning of Adam and Eve to domesticate this world for God's praise, and it's become a wreck, not a blessing. That's the difficulty we're a part of. But it's not, just, it's not just an external difficulty, right? It's not just that between us and God, it's been ruined. Between us and each other, it's ruined. And us and the creation, it's been ruined. But look at verse 15. Even within us, in our psyche, things are not the way they should be. Verse 15 says this, And deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery, the fear of death and all the anxieties that come with it. Do you know that psychologists and psychiatrists say that fear of death is one of the most grip, uh, one of the most uh, powerful fears and anxieties we have in our culture? Meaninglessness and isolation being the other two. And we see it here. Friends, when you look at what Hebrews 2 has to say, in a sense, humanity is just a hot mess right? Not only is our relationship with God severed, our relationship with one another, the relationship with creation, but even internally, we struggle. And friends, this is the situation in which Jesus came into, and He did solve it. And we'll talk a little bit about that in a couple of weeks, but I just want to focus on something very unique about the incarnation this morning, and that has to do with this, this, this reference to our fears and, and our anxieties here. And I actually learned this from my kids. When my boys were really young, probably about three or four years old, maybe some of the ages of the kids here, they would always ask me and mom to help them sleep, which, which basically meant go lie in bed with them until they fell asleep. And when we lived in the Midwest, sometimes we'd get some severe storms. And I remember lying in the darkness of night, in the pitch black, and I forget if it was Asher or Asa, 
but especially if the thunder would be shaking the house or the rain coming down hard, and you just hear this little voice whisper into the night, Dad, are you there? And I just say, yeah, Dad's here. Or sometimes I wouldn't have to say that. I would just put my hand on their hand, you know, on their little hand, and then they would grab it. And I realized after a couple months of doing this that the most reassuring thing a child who's afraid can hear is their father just simply saying, I'm here. I'm with you. I mean, they had no idea that if a tornado took the roof off, a dad could do nothing, right? That, that didn't matter to them. All that mattered was that if dad's presence was here, they'd be safe. Regardless of the storm raging outside, regardless of the thunder crashing around us, if dad was here, it was going to be okay. They, whether or not they knew I could actually protect them, they didn't even care. They didn't require explanation, and all it required was presence. Friends, in the incarnation, it is God saying those very words, I'm here. I'm with you. As a matter of fact, that's literally what Jesus' name means. In Matthew 1.23, it says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. I'm with you. In the incarnation, God came to be with us, not despite our difficulties, but because of our difficulties. Friends, I hope, I hope that that comforts you. I hope that that comforts you, that you, that God knows that life is hard, it can be scary, it can be painful, and He gets it, and He is here with you. The question is, how many of us are lying alone in the darkness of life, and we're not even asking, Dad, are, are you here? We're not even reaching out for His hand. We're trying to do it on our own. And you know what? As much as it got me tired, I am so glad my boys always wanted Dad to be there with them because I knew my presence gave them peace. And that's the incarnation. But the great news, it gets better. God did not come merely to comfort us, although that is huge. He came to comfort us, but He came to restore us to the glory that He always intended for humanity. Let me read to you. Um, it's a bit long, but I do want to read it so I can unpack it. So starting at verse 5, I'm just going to read it to verse 10. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. He's speaking of the creation of which we are now speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, verse 9, but we See him for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. Why is he crowned with glory and honor? Because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Verse 10, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of our salvation perfect through their suffering. Friends, again, Psalm 8 is a celebration of God's majesty 
and the exalted place that humans had at creation. In verse 9 here, in transitioning to Jesus in verse 9, the writer implies that, that this, this right, the vice regency of humanity has been restored in Christ. And the way the writer in Hebrews 2 uses Psalm 8, he's doing two things simultaneously. One, he's looking back to the, 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 the God's original intention of, of humanity in the garden, in creation, and he's simultaneously looking forward to God's completion of his plan and the installment of this new humanity that comes through another man. Remember, in Psalm 8, this is King David. And he's wondering about these thoughts, and the writer in Hebrews 2 says, hey, looking forward, there's going to be somebody who finishes this, who installs a new humanity, who's going to come through another man, another man who can be representative of man, like Adam, who failed. But this Adam won't fail. Which is why in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus is called the last Adam, the second Adam. Friends, the incarnation of Jesus Christ it's like Jesus saying, hey, coach, coach, put me in. Put me in because I can do this for the team. And that's exactly what God does. He becomes a new representative for humanity since he himself partook of the same things and was made like his brothers in every way. Verse 10 can say he's bringing many sons to glory. Now, what's verse 10 referring to? He's not talking about bringing many sons to heaven, although that is true. What he's directly referring to there in verse 10, bringing many sons to glory, is a reference to God's intentional, original design that humanity would be a representative of God in all that glory and all that honor. We would rule justly. We would rule fairly, benevolently, and lovingly. We would be God's vice regents in the creation, something that we are so far from now. But Jesus says, I'm going to restore all that glory to you. Friends, Jesus' incarnation is not just something, uh, some part of the process that God had to go through so he could accomplish the gospel. The incarnation gets to the heart of the very gospel, that God would come to us, that God would pursue us, that God would identify with us and do for us what we should do but could never do it. And on to top it all off, He gives to us all the benefits and blessings as if we did it ourselves. Like popular culture, the Bible does teach that humanity does have a problem. But unlike popular culture, the answer isn't a, a new and improved version of the same thing, but an entirely different humanity that's ushered in through the incarnation of Jesus Christ, which is why verse 10 can call him the pioneer, the founder of our salvation. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we are thankful to think about the incarnation. But Lord, this is, this is the, the evidence that, that we cannot do this on our own. Our situation is such that it required you to come down to us. So, Lord, we are thankful that you came to us, that you identified with us, that you did for us what we could not do, although we were supposed to, yet we rebelled against you. We thank you for the Son who accomplishes for us what we could never do, so we, in turn, could be sons and daughters. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.